again the same three verses that we read last week. We're going to focus on verse 25 of Matthew chapter 16, but I want to read verses 24 through 26 as we continue this, this overall general theme, which I'll explain by way of introduction. But we read in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would send the Holy Spirit now to illuminate the Scriptures. Lord, we know that no one can understand the mind of a man except the, the Spirit of that man, and no one can understand Your mind except for Your Spirit. And so we need Your Spirit to come and help us to understand what You have spoken. We pray that the Spirit would guide us into all truth and help us to apply it. Lord, I pray that You would tear down our natural defenses so that we might understand and submit to Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. We began last week to look at these three verses which lay out for us what I have entitled the comprehensive necessity of suffering in the kingdom of Christ. So if you were to lay out these three verses as a whole and, and sort of put them into an outline, the overall heading is the comprehensive necessity of suffering in the kingdom of Christ. That is, not only must the Messiah suffer, all of the citizens of the kingdom must suffer to some extent. And that's the, the main point that Jesus is trying to convey to His disciples here. The first subheading that we studied last week, specifically looking at verse 24, is the requirement of discipleship. If we are going to follow Christ, what is required? Now again, I did not say if we are to be declared righteous before God, if we are to be born again, if we are to be saved, then we must do this or that. We know that is of grace, earned by Christ on the cross. Only His work is sufficient to earn us a right standing before God, and we only receive that through faith. But if we are to be disciples of Christ, that is to, to continue on that path, we looked at last week the requirement of discipleship in verse 24. If one is to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, then he must deny himself. He's required to. He must take up his cross. That's a requirement. And he must follow Jesus, the third in those requirements. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ if you do not deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. We must walk in His steps. We must follow Him closely and completely. We must mimic His own selfless humility as He is described by the Apostle as the one who did not serve Himself. 
completely contrary to everything that is natural to us, we have to follow Him who did not serve Himself. So today we pick up that same overarching theme, the comprehensive necessity of suffering in the kingdom of Christ, under the, the second subtitle. The title of this message is The Reality of Discipleship. Last week was the requirement. This week is the reality. And I want to begin by sort of unpacking that title. Why have I called this sermon and sort of um, categorized this verse under that heading or that title? Well, the reality of something based on the dictionary definition, is the state of things as they actually exist, or the, uh, the state of things as they exist as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. So there is reality, but reality is reality as opposed to non-reality. The, an, an idealistic or notional idea. Discipleship. I've defined as the state of being that a person finds himself in when he is a fully devoted follower and imitator of Jesus Christ. That's discipleship. So if we put those two ideas together, then the general topic of verse 25 of Matthew chapter 16 is is this. Biblical discipleship as it actually exists, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of discipleship. In other words, what discipleship really is versus what we wish it were or, or what, we, what we think it might be. And this is why it's important. I, I used this phrase last week that is, is classic. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. See, everybody has this idea of what they wish were the case, but is that really the case? Many people in Jesus' day wanted to follow Jesus for various reasons, but the majority of them did not want to follow Him for the right reasons. The same is today. Many people want to be called followers of Jesus, but they're not open to striving for these requirements. Many people want to be, quote, Christian in their general appearance, but they do not want to really be individual Christians. Many people want to run to the blogosphere to learn what a Christian perspective might be, but they don't actually want to do the work themselves of investing and involving themselves in the personal study and journey of being a Christian, studying God's Word, knowing God intimately. Well, just, just Google it and find out what a Christian's supposed to do. That's because there is idealistic discipleship, what I wish it were or think it might be, and then there's realistic discipleship. What people think it is versus what Jesus actually said it is. Now in verse 24, a lot of our idealistic notions have already been shattered. You mean that I have to deny myself? Yes. You mean that I must forego the pleasures that are enjoyed by many, if not most, of my peers? Yes. You mean I must set aside my earthly lusts and desires? Jesus says, yes, you must, or you cannot be my disciple. So the reality of the discipleship, or the reality of discipleship is this. If we chisel away all of the details, 
what to do here, what not to do here, all of the minutia, the daily specifics of, of being a disciple of Christ, and we get down to the bare essence of being a disciple, the nitty-gritty in its most basic form, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? That is defined in verse 25. True Christian discipleship consists in a yielding up of one's own life for the sake of Christ and in doing so, actually preserving what is truly life. So there we even also see the, this contrast between the realistic and the idealistic. You give up your life, but you actually receive what is really life. So there's life and then there's real life. Or we might consider it uh, life and, and abundant life. So that's our topic. And I want to open up this one verse under two headings. And you'll, the title of these two headings are both sort of reminiscent of the first point last week. First, I want to look at the all-inclusive result of self-preservation. And then we will look at the all-inclusive result of self-abandonment. So point number one, the all-inclusive result of self-preservation. Remember, Jesus is speaking to a crowd that no doubt was made up of both true, genuine followers, those who we would, we would call them Christians, although they didn't, have, they didn't have that title yet, and those who followed Jesus for other reasons. They, they did not have Holy Spirit conviction. They followed Him for some other reason. Purpose, And so we seen last week, the Lord has already given the necessary requirements for self-discipleship, or, or for discipleship, self-denial. Take up your cross and follow me. The question that we answer today is, why is that so? Why would He, why is that the necessary program for those who would follow Christ? Why is it that? Why is it not something else? Is Jesus just making it up on the fly? Where did He get this idea? Verse 25 begins with these words. He says, For. In other words, the reason being. So He just stated, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. The reason being... And then he goes out, and this is what we're going to look at today. He's going to lay out for us in a very simple form. There's, there's not a whole lot of hidden meaning here. It's very plain and very simple. But he lays out this simple form, this, this pattern that is utilized in the kingdom. He's going to lay out for us the kingdom ethic that we've already studied. We've already talked about this. I've used phrases like, Victory through suffering. That's how we win. It's through suffering. Not through what we would want, might consider religious liberty. We don't need a constitution to tell us that we have the right to religious liberty. If we don't have religious liberty, then we say, then we worship anyway. We, we don't need that. See, we, and we don't, we don't corral ourselves together or round up the numbers especially partnering with unbelievers and, and, and cults to try to build up our case for religious liberty. We say, well, if we have religious liberty, that's good. Thank you. If you take it from us, sorry, it doesn't matter. 
And we're not going to ask the Muslims to stand behind us and help us. We don't need that. We have Christ. Our ethic is victory through suffering. What, What might you do? Kill us? Then we win. Victory through suffering. Or we've, I've phrased it this way, conquest through apparent defeat. Well, it sure looked like Jesus lost to those who were there. It might look like the Christian church is suffering. It might look like the, the Christian way, the kingdom is being snuffed out. That's, it's apparent, that's what it looks like, but it's not so. The kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's always growing. It's always permeating everything. And so... These ideas, this is what Jesus is going to lay out again using another phrase, which I'll, I'll insert in a little bit. But he says, For the reason being, the reason that a man must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, he gives us another word, whoever. That is, again, it is all-inclusive. It applies to every person. I made this point last week. This is not for the elite. This is not for the especially gifted believer. This is not for the Christian who just happened to be born in the third world and we would look at them and say, well, I mean, they've never gotten used to having all this stuff. They don't know any better, so it's really not that big of a deal for them to deny themselves. No, it's for everyone, everyone, whoever. He uses the word would again, which tells us that he's talking about a person who desires this, who wants it. For whoever would, whoever wants to, save his life. The word save is the word sozo. When we talk about salvation, the doctrines of salvation, we call it soteriology. It comes from this word sozo, to save, to protect, to preserve, to keep safe, to rescue. And then he uses this term Life, which is important. In the original language, the term life and the term soul, which we will look at next week, they're the same word. And if you know much about this language, there every word has a, a semantic range. That means it could mean this, or it could mean this, or it could mean various things within that range. You have to read into the context to find out what it means. And so he uses the term life, and which is translated in our Bibles, life, here. And I don't think that it's meant to be taken as exactly the same meaning as the word soul in verse 26. But rather, I think what Jesus is doing is sort of formulating a play on words to connect all of this together. So when we look at this word life, I believe there's a reference that's already been used that might help. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25, Jesus said this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Same word. What you will eat or what you will drink. Nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So notice, Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. And then he sort of spells out what life is. It's what you will eat or what you'll drink. But then, he says, is not life more than these? So life consists in food. It consists of the physical. But that's only the most basic idea. There's more. It's more than that. This is not the word zoe, which is also translated life. That means just your your bare physical, what we might consider the animal animation of a person being 
alive. This is the physical aspect, but also the spiritual. So there's a physical aspect and then the non-physical. Now last week, we looked at this idea of denying self. And we looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and 1 John chapter 2, and we took note of the many different things that were considered the things of the world or the things of man and how they relate to self. You must deny yourself. When we come to the term life in this regard, it's the physical and the non-physical self that receives fulfillment and joy, and satisfaction, and stimulation, and pleasure, and excitement, and supposed benefit from all of the things of the world, all of the things of man. That's life. Yes, it's physical. Yes, it's non-physical. Yes, it's mental and spiritual as well. So Jesus says, all-inclusively, whoever would save his life, anyone, universally speaking, who aspires to preserve or to protect, to hold on to the fulfillment or the joy or the satisfaction or the stimulation or the pleasure or the excitement and supposed temporal benefits that they receive from the things of the world. That's what he means when he says, whoever would save his life. This idea of saving your life is the opposite of denying yourself. It is not taking up your cross. It is not following Jesus. This is, to use the phrase that Jesus described Peter with, this is to set your mind, your thoughts, your intentions, your will, your aspirations on the things of man. This is your life. So to save your life is is loving the world in Reference to 1 John 2. Whoever loves the world, the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. To, de- to, to save your life is to love the things of the world. To live for the desires of the flesh. To live for the desires of the eyes. To live for the pride of life. This, all of this put together proves the love of the Father is not in you. Now it's interesting that Jesus uses the word save, rescue, preserve, hold on to... As if these things, this life, is potentially going to be taken from you. And yet you do whatever it takes to preserve it. It's like there's a pulling. It begins to be pulled away and you cling to it more tightly. There's an obvious tension, but you sort of buckle down. You're not going to give in. You're saving. When the things of God would endeavor to come between you and the things of the world, your mind is already made up that in this scenario, your situation is different than every other situation, and therefore your worldly response is justified. I'm going to hold on because that's not talking about me. And therefore you save your life. Now this shows itself in many different ways. Perhaps... It's very simple. Your pleasures come before your sanctification. Your hobbies take precedence over the duties of Christ and His church. Spending on yourself takes precedence over the advance of Christ's kingdom. This would happen whenever we make sure 
that our children like us, and that takes precedence over making sure that our children obey us. This happens when we work for our children's temporal satisfaction and happiness, and that gets more attention than our working for their salvation. I just want them to have this and to be happy and to do this and to have fun, but we put very little effort into making sure that they understand the gospel. This happens, this could be either spouse, but I would imagine for men most often, when we would, in conversation with our spouses, we would rather keep the topic shallow and light rather than getting deep, rather than challenging your wife in personal growth with the Lord because you know from the past that if you bring that up again, it's probably going to start an argument. It's probably going to breed some tension for a moment. And rather than get into that, we'll just keep everything light. Hey, how was your day? How's it going? Oh, great. Okay, fine. Well, keep everything light because we don't want to be uncomfortable. This happens when we spend time watching TV or on Facebook rather than having family worship. This happens when we pretend that the ungodliness that we watch on TV won't affect our hearts rather than, what the Bible says, striving to put no unclean thing before my eyes. Will it have an effect on me? It doesn't matter because I'm not going to put it before my eyes. This happens when we make sure that we get 30 extra minutes of sleep rather than spending time with God in prayer and study of Scripture. This happens when we... When we Make sure that we take that extra glance to satisfy a mental or physical lust rather than looking away. This happens when we would spend 15 minutes on social media while skipping the regular reading of God's Word. This is, in essence, just never being able to tell your natural self no. This shows itself whenever you get upset, when people slow you down or get in your way. This happens when you hold your tongue concerning the things of Christ because you know that that's going to make you look strange if you speak up. This happens when you care more about your personal interests than the interests of others or your family or the church of Jesus Christ. These are ways in which we seek to save our life. In all of these, whether they are purely external a physical lust of the flesh, or they concern the material pleasures of the world that would satisfy us physically and keep us comfortable, or whether they're merely internal, they're merely spiritual, merely mental, they concern only your personal mental satisfaction. They are ways in which we seek to save or preserve or protect our lives. And Jesus says, whoever's life is characterized by that way of living, the one who would save his life will lose it. That is, you will lose your life. Those whose lives consist of receiving fulfillment and joy and satisfaction and stimulation and comfort and pleasure and excitement and supposed benefit from the things of the world. Those whose earthly existence is made up of just of simply bouncing back and forth like a pinball game between worldly pleasures. If you think about your life, all that your life is is a, a stringing together of self-gratifying pleasures on a rope of labor because, hey, i got to pay for my stuff. Or 
those who have none of this, and yet their mind longs for it all the time. That's all they want. I just want to get to the point where I can have this, and I can have that, and I can have this, and I'm working towards the day to have this and to that. You have none of it. It would be easy to say, well, I know I have none of that, but you want it, and you long for it. That type of person, Jesus says, they'll lose their life. Now, what does that mean? When we say they lost their life, we mean they die. But we already know that every person is subject to physical death. Unless Jesus comes back first, everybody will physically die. And we also know that all human beings are born spiritually dead. That's the spiritual death. That's everybody. Well, this is another conditional statement like we saw last week, which means not everybody's going to meet, going to meet this, meet this, meet this condition. Not everybody will lose their life. Only if you say this. So the life that Jesus is talking about losing is a life that not everybody will lose. Everybody will lose their physical life, and everybody's born having already lost their spiritual life. So what does it mean when Jesus says they will lose it? They will lose their life. Well, the only other death, the only other loss of life that's left is the second death. It's eternal death. And I believe that this is the connection between verses 25 and 26 where the word life is translated soul. Jesus is saying, in essence, whoever would save his life will lose his soul. And that's why verse 26 talking, talks about the loss of the soul. Whoever seeks to preserve this present life loses it in the next life. Whoever has their best life now has no life to come. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14 says this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Unless we be confused, Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, and Revelation 14, 11 assure us that this torment is eternal. If we have eternal life, then there must also be eternal death. So I think it's pretty plain then. The all-inclusive result of self-preservation is eternal damnation. For the one who would save their lives, these 80 or 90 years will be fun. They will be full of excitement and joy and pleasure and possessions. People will respect you. Your children will love you. But all of that will pale in comparison to eternity that you will suffer under the wrath of God because you refused to deny yourself. You refused to die. So Jesus makes the kingdom ethic very clear. Not only is there victory through suffering, not only is there conquest through apparent defeat, there's life through death. Maybe not physical death. We might not be martyred, but figurative death, a denying of ourselves, a giving up of our temporal earthly life. That's how we live. We die and therefore we live. You see again how the kingdom way, the, the way of the Christian, the school of Christ, the ethic of the kingdom is absolutely antithetical to the natural way of thinking. To win you must lose. To live you must die. To have victory you must suffer. You see, we're naturally ingrained with self-preservation at our core. You touch something hot, you jerk away. 
You get too close to the fire, you back up. It's only natural to preserve ourselves. And yet Jesus says when it comes to the things of God and the things of man, you must lose it. You must die to yourself. And that's why I said last week, figuratively speaking, at least every Christian must be a martyr. You must lose your life. Our Lord says continue in that natural way and you'll lose everything that you've ever fought to preserve. So the all-inclusive result of self-preservation is eternal damnation. Heading number two. The all-inclusive result of self-abandonment. Again, because we're reading a conditional statement, not everyone will seek to save his life. Therefore, there will be some who might do something different. And it's here at the end of verse 25 where Jesus gives us the contrast. He gives us the other side of this coin. He begins with the word, but. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but. Whoever, again, it's universal. It's not just for the wise. It's not just for the rich. It's not just for the noble. It's not just for the intelligent. It's not just for the handsome. It's not just for the vocational minister. Whoever. And here's the opposite worldview described, whoever loses his life. This is the opposite of everything we just considered. This is self-denial. This is the abandoning of self. This is saying no to self. The loss of life that Jesus is referring to here would be the setting aside of personal fulfillment. Setting aside temporal joy. Setting aside earthly satisfaction and stimulation and, and pleasure and excitement and comfort. Setting aside all of the supposed benefits from the things of the world. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't stop with just loss of life. He qualifies this self-denial by giving us the proper motivation. He says, whoever loses his life for my sake... This is where we have to be very careful and really start to judge our motives. Because this losing of one's life, this self-denial is not just self-denial for any old reason. Many people throughout history are, are, have been quick to give themselves up. I mean, if you believe in chivalry, many men will deny themselves for the sake of their wives and children. Just traditional values of a, of a bygone era causes a different generation to put others first. Many men have given their lives in service to their country. Or I think of even local firemen, policemen, EMS workers. They give their lives for people. Or people do this in service to their family. Men will lay down their lives and work and slave to provide for their family. Animals do that. Study beavers. They do that. Or people to give up their lives in service to a noble cause. Civil rights, world peace. In, in Eastern countries, Eastern um, thought, honor is a very big deal. And so people will sacrifice, sacrifice themselves to uphold the honor of their family name. In preparing for this message, I had to ask Christy for some advice because I couldn't even think of ways in which 
A wife and a mother and a homemaker might be tempted towards selfishness. To me, that looks like the most selfless duty on the planet. And yet many mothers and wives will give of themselves 20, 30, 40 years to the rearing of their children and, and the keeping of the home. Now to be clear, these may fit into what Jesus is talking about, but in and of themselves, they're not enough. It's not enough to say I gave myself for my family. It's not enough to say I gave myself for my country. Because of common grace, there are many people who would deny themselves who care nothing about Christ and His kingdom. Jesus says, whoever would lose his life for my sake. That is, on account of me. Mark in his account adds, whoever would lose his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. That is, on account of Christ and on account of the Gospel. Now remember, in this section we're contrasting Various or two different polar opposites. There's the things of God and the things of man. Peter had his mindset wrong. There's self-denial and there's self-gratification. There's loss of life and there's preservation of life. There's following Christ and there's following self. So if we keep that theme going, if one is either or if one is to either save his life for his own sake, his own pleasures, comforts, desires, or lose his life for the sake of Christ then the Christ and the Gospel, we put these two synoptics together, are, are a synecdoche. A synecdoche is when you use one word or a, or a little phrase to describe a bunch of other stuff. I believe that this is a synecdoche for the things of God or the things of Christ. So when we put this together, whoever would lose his life for my sake plus my sake and the Gospels, what Jesus is saying is whoever would lose his life for anything that falls under the heading, the things of God. That be the Word of God and the diligent study of it. Practical, holy Christian living and commitment to it. I will obey all of God's commands. I will put no unclean thing before me. I will commit to holiness this day. Whatever it costs, this is to... Lose your life for the sake of the gospel and the spread of it. This is to lose your life for the church of Christ and devotion to it. This is to lose your life for the people of Christ and your love for them. This is to lose your life for the kingdom and the advance of it. In other words, again, to lose one's life on account of Christ is to give up everything that is natural, everything that is selfish, everything that is worldly for the sake of taking up all that is godly. So when that tension arises and godliness tugs in one direction and self tugs at the other, you let go of self. You let it go. A clear vision of God in Christ and all that He is and all that He deserves and all that He requires causes the things of this world to grow strangely dim. I don't need them. Like we said last week, I don't know the man. I don't know what you mean. I think it was Martin Luther, a story was told that someone came to his house, and this might be an extreme, but someone came to his house and knocked on the door and he came and they said, is Martin Luther here? And he said, Martin Luther doesn't live here anymore. Only Jesus. Because he had died to himself. That was the idea. All the things of the world are forgotten. They're set aside for the sake of Christ. Listen to how 
Paul explains it when he's writing to the Philippian Christians. This is a common passage to us, but notice he says in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, there's our language again, for His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. It sounds like Paul saying, I will do whatever it takes to make sure that I stay saved. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't, he's, not, he's not worried about losing his salvation. Notice what Paul considers under the heading of the sake of Christ. On account of Christ, he, he phrases it like this, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, being found in Him, attaining to the resurrection, that is, holding firm to the faith until the end. Now what was He prepared to endure in order that He may know Christ and be found in Him and hold firm to the faith? It says he endured the loss of all things. He considered all things as rubbish. He abandoned every form of self-righteousness. And prior to this, you would have probably found no one more self-righteous than Paul. He said, I'll share in Christ's sufferings. I'll suffer even unto death. Notice he says, by any means possible, whatever it takes, I'll do anything if that will mean that when I'm done, I will stand before Christ and be found in Him. Whatever I must do to make my calling and election sure, whatever I must do to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, that which is being worked in me, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I'll do anything to verify to everyone around me that I belong to Christ and that I may know Him. That is the reality of discipleship. That's what it is. At its core, it's no more than that. It's that simple. At its core, discipleship is death to self for the sake of Christ. And in its exhaustive application, it's nothing less than death to self for the sake of Christ. The first act of saving faith, we said last week, is looking away from self and looking to Christ. And then every subsequent day after that requires a determination to continue fixing your eyes on Christ and away from self through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, just a few things that will take place. Scripture will take a priority. The church, people, become the beloved. The gospel becomes urgent. Godliness becomes the standard. Because I'm not here to promote myself. I'm not here to satisfy myself. So by way of application then, is this what you signed up for? 
Is that how you describe what you call Christianity? Now we have to be careful how we answer that question. If we say, well, I'll do whatever it takes to know Christ more. Would you say that? I'll do anything. I'll, I'll go through whatever it takes. I'll suffer the loss of all things to be found in Him, to know Christ more. Can you say that? And if so, you better be very careful. Because God has been known to snatch away jobs and snatch away homes and snatch away children so that He would put His children on their knees and rely on Him more and know Christ more and be found in Him more deeply. He will take you up on the offer if you will say, I'll do whatever it takes. It by all means possible that I may be found in Him. If not... You say, I don't think that's, that's what, what I signed up for. Then I would command you this day to repent and believe the gospel and be saved. Now I want to close with this simple, practical, real life scenario where this idea comes into play. Why this understanding of discipleship matters. Why this proclamation of the gospel or why the proclamation of the gospel including this matters. I had the opportunity to share the gospel with a young man. Roy was with me came to find me, to ask me, how do I be saved? I'm ready right now. He wants to be saved. He doesn't want to go to hell. He wants to go to heaven. He understands something of the wrath of God. He understands something to the effect that whatever I've done in my past is going to take me to hell if something doesn't change. came to me. So I presented the gospel. Yes, God is holy. Yes, you have sinned. Christ is the only way to be saved. God sent His Son to die in the place of sinners as the substitute bearing God's wrath and it's only through faith in Jesus that you can be saved. Oh yeah, 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 I'm ready, I'm ready. Well before we pray, you need to understand that when we open our eyes back up, you're dead. You're gone. You don't exist anymore. Yes, physically you'll be here, but... You don't live for yourself. Everything you've ever wanted, everything you've ever desired up until this point, all of your life's goals and dreams, they're gone because you have died and you will open up your eyes alive in Christ and He will live. You know what He said? I'm not ready. I'm done. I said, okay, well when you're ready, come talk to me. To this day, I would assume, I'm imagining, the young man is still lost, still unrepentant, still living as worldly as he has ever lived. Did he want to be saved? Yeah, he wanted it. Is he saved? No. It was not Holy Spirit wrought conviction and therefore in proclaiming the truth to him that you must die, he said, that's not it. He's like the rich man. When Jesus said, then go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and Come follow me. And he was sad because he had many possessions, great riches, great wealth. When he realized the reality of discipleship is death of self. For the sake of Christ, he couldn't do it. So as we turn to the Lord's table, and you examine your heart, make sure that your trust in Christ and in Christ alone is spirit wrought. Ask yourself, is my desire to follow Christ motivated by a true Holy Spirit given devotion to follow Christ no matter what? If not, 
Behold, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So I would say, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. So I trust as the elements are being passed that we will examine our hearts and then we will come to the Lord's table.